Well, in the past couple of weeks, we've been in a new series, a series that we are calling Forward in Faith, named appropriately after our giving campaign that we are, uh, we are in the midst of to raise money for our remodeling, but also the idea, as we've talked about all along, is that you know, this is uh, an act of faith, stepping out in faith, being stretched by God, and that's really for me, the greater purpose here is that you know, we're being called to respond to something God's called us to do, and, and in doing so, uh, the growth that's going to take place, I believe, in our lives individually in the life of this church is going to be tremendous, more than we could ever imagine. And that's why the purpose of this series is to move forward in faith according to God's call and to build, or according to his will, and build according to his call. You know, to build, yes, a building, or to remodel a building, but also building our lives and building his kingdom. That's what we're here for, is to advance the kingdom of God. And whatever tools we can use to do that, um, however we can accomplish that, uh, without compromising the word of God, that's what we want to do. We want to be able to spread the gospel and to reach people uh, for God's kingdom. Today we're going to look at the widows, the story of the widow's might, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 21. We also see it in Mark chapter 12, but we're going to focus on Luke chapter 21 uh, while referring to a view uh, to Mark chapter 12 as we go through uh, the, our message today. In Luke and Mark's account we, of the widow's might, you know, it's interesting. He, uh, Jesus has just been talking about greed. And he zeroes in, he finishes in this, with this story on uh, great generosity, the generosity of a poor widow. And what we see, the scene is set here, Mark points this out, where Jesus, uh, both of them point out that he's in the temple courts, but, but Mark specifically said he's sitting across from the treasury. He's watching as people are coming in, there were uh, little, uh, they called them trumpets, but buckets essentially set up for people to give offerings to different things, you know. To, to buy supplies for the temple, uh, to pay for the, the needs of the temple. So essentially, people are giving their tithes. They're walking in, and they're giving publicly their, their offerings. And Jesus is watching this take place. You think about that for a moment. If you, were, if you knew who Jesus was, and you knew he was watching you, just sitting there physically watching you, um, that would be a little bit intimidating, wouldn't it? Uh, but the reality is he watches us every Sunday. He watches us every day as we go through our lives. And not only monetarily what we give, he watches how much of our lives do we give to him. What is it that we're willing to sacrifice? What is it that we're willing to do for him that he calls us to do? And we have here in this story a great contrast between condemnation and commendation. You know, and I, for one, want to know what Jesus commends and what he condemns, don't you? I want to know what he expects from me and what he, pleases him and what doesn't please him. And so as we look in Luke chapter 21, we see a, a contrast between those two things. Look at verse 1 with me. He looked up and saw the rich. Again, he's watching them come in one at a time, groups at a time. He's watching people give. He saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people put in gifts out of their surplus, 
But she, out of her poverty, has put in all that she had to live on. So this story is about sacrifice. It's not about the size of a gift. It's about what am I willing to sacrifice for the Lord? And this widow sacrificed all that she had. Whereas others, giving more, were just giving out of their surplus. Dr. Bob Record and Randy Singer, in their book, Made to Count, refer to the Bible as an owner's manual. And it is, in a way. They say every vehicle has an owner's manual. According to the car's man- car manufacturers, the recommendations in the owner's manual are there for two interrelated reasons. Number one, to keep the vehicle operating at maximum effectiveness. Or number two, and number two, to avoid major breakdowns. The problem is, they say, when do most people refer to the owner's manual? When something's already wrong, right? It's not preventative, it's reactionary. They say, unfortunately, too many of us want to read or wait to read the manual until, you guessed it, our vehicle has broken down. The sad truth is we tend to treat the Bible the same way. We wait until something's wrong in our lives to go looking for answers. We don't read it and study it as instructions for how we are to live our lives. God gave us his word with principles to follow so that our lives can operate at maximum effectiveness in terms of his standard of measuring that. And we can avoid major breakdowns in life. Now listen, life is tough and you're going to be hit with things, tragedies that you don't expect. I'm not talking about trials and tribulations. We have those. But spiritually, as we're attempting to grow for Christ, if we will read the manual and make it a part of our lives and follow it, just by simply following God's rules, we're going to avoid some major breakdowns in lives. I mean, think about it and be honest with yourself. How many breakdowns in your life have you had that you caused because you weren't following God's standard? Or you weren't following his rules, his guardrails that he's put in your life and my life for our own protection. I know I could list pages worth of mistakes that I've made because I simply wasn't following God's rules for my life. And that's what God's word is there for, to tell us what he wants from us, to reveal his will and his self, his character. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 tells us all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what I want for my life. Isn't that what you want, to know God's will, to be equipped to do God's will, to accomplish it so that you can please him with your life? So with that in mind, what instructions do we gain from this short story about the widow giving that small offering, but it being all that she had? What are the instructions or what are the truths that we can gain that will help us know how we are to live our lives as a sacrifice for our Savior. Well, the first is this. Jesus sees both the gift and the giver. He sees what we give, and he sees the person doing it, the motives behind what we're giving. And yes, we're talking about finances, but we're also talking about our time and our talents, the things that God has given us to be used to advance his kingdom. He sees what we give and what we choose to hold on to. And he sees our hearts. Look at verse 1 again of Luke 21. He looked up and saw that word looked is important. He saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. Now that word look, it, it indicates it's more than just, you know, 
sitting by and just kind of casually watching. You know, you ever, you ever just sit at the park or something or at the store and just, you know, watch people, you know, just casually, just, he's not just doing that. No, this word means to look with interest and perception. He's focused and he's watching each person and he's watching what they're giving, yes, but he's also being God, he's seeing straight through the person to their heart, and he sees the motives behind their giving. Why are they doing it? Are they doing it just because it's time to do it? Are they doing it because they got a little left over? Or are they really doing it as a commitment, as a sacrifice to the Lord? He sees the gift and the giver. Now listen, you know, Jesus is concerned with our possessions. He talks in the Bible about money and possessions. He mentions money and possessions over 23 2,350 times. Now, why is he concerned with our money? Is it because he needs it? No, he doesn't need anything. I mean, he's God. He's, he is fully sufficient. He doesn't need any help from anybody, especially us. It's not about that he wants our money. He knows how much of a problem money can be for us. He knows that it can be a stumbling block for us. And because we use it every day and because we tend to gain our value from what we have or don't have, that's why he talks about it so much. Because it can be a huge barrier in our fully trusting God. We become self-reliant and we depend on ourselves instead of trusting in God. And that's why Jesus talked about it as much as he did. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, wealth can be dangerous. It has power and can slowly seduce us into treating it like a God. Instead of loving God with all the heart, soul, and mind, we try to love God and money. And before long, God loses out. The desire for money possesses the heart. Thoughts of ways to get money control the mind. And before long, the will is captured, and money starts to rule the will. That happens if we're not careful, our possessions, we can gain too much value, too much worth in what we have. And before long, that starts to control us and to control our thinking instead of God controlling our lives. That's why Jesus talked about it as much as he did. And so what, when Jesus is sitting there watching all of these people, what does he see? Well, the first thing he sees is the wealthy. We see that he, it's pointed out that he sees the wealthy giving their offerings. The rich, he says, he sees the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. Now, in Herod's temple, you had four different courts, four separate courts separated, uh, and they all had a purpose, okay? You had the Gentile court, and you can imagine the Gentiles, that's where the, those who were not Jewish would enter. All right, you had uh, the court of Israel, where God's people would enter. You had the court of women, uh, and then you had uh, also the uh, the beautiful uh, between the court of, of Gentiles and the court of women. You had uh, the beautiful gate. So you have the Gentiles, the court of women, the court of Israel's, and then. Then you had where the priests would enter, the court for the priests. So you had these outer courts. And, and again, between the Gentile, the court of Gentiles, the court of women, you had this, what was called the beautiful gate. 
And because, you know, women were only allowed to enter through the court of women, uh, that's where the offerings were set up. These trumpets that, we, that I just talked about, these essentially uh, fancy baskets that were shaped like trumpets. And they were for different things, like I said, different, different purposes. And people would walk in and they would give their offerings. And so Jesus is sitting here in this in prime position watching all of these people walk in. And he sees first the wealthy coming in and giving their contributions. Second, he sees those in poverty. He sees this poor widow. Verse 2, he sees a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. The widow's unnamed, yet she's got a place in the Hall of Fame in the Bible. I mean, we know her. We're talking about her right now. We don't know her name, but we know her because of her sacrifice. And she represents all of those people behind the scenes that give that do things that nobody else sees, whatever they have, they're willing to, to use for God's service. No one knows about it, but without them, the church would not exist, would not continue to move forward. Is her gift large in the sense of monetary value? Absolutely not. But in the sense of her sacrifice, it's, it's priceless. There's no way to measure. I mean, God does, but we can't fully understand the value of what she's giving as well as many. The Greek word here expresses extreme poverty. You know, that might, uh, the word is lepta, and it's the smallest coin that's used, was used in the first century. That's how small it was. It took 64 mites to amount to a denarius, which was a day's wages. So, you know, this was worth a fraction of a penny, according to our our standards today. Uh, it literally means, lepta literally means a thin one, and the boy was it thin. I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go very far. I mean, imagine how far a penny would go today, a fraction of that. It's not going to get very far, but the point is, is that it's all she had. This is what she had, and she wanted, instead of keeping it for herself, she gave it to the Lord. She gave it so that it could be used for, for God's work, and the Bible affirms that everything that we have comes from him, right? I mean, whatever I have, it's a blessing from God. He's chosen to allow me to manage it. He's chosen to allow me uh, to have it in my possession for the purpose of using. And so how I use it reflects my commitment to him. It reflects my love for him. Everything we get is because God has given it to us. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant. He swore to your fathers as it is today. So here's the point. Everything we have comes as a blessing from God. We have to make a decision about how we will use the blessings that he gives us. And to talk about that today, I'm going to ask Mike Abbott to come forward. He's going to sit down with me for a few minutes, and we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how God uh, may be leading he and his family. And, and maybe through that, we can learn a little bit about how maybe he wants us to use the blessings that he gives us. Thank you, Mike, for joining us this morning. You can have a seat there. Would say this had I know you were going to set me up by talking about the widow's might. <laughs> yeah. And now, what's Mike and Carol going to give? Are, are we going to give a, you know, everything? It's, I'm sneaky. I that think way. I would have had second yeah. thoughts. Yeah, about well, saying, I, yeah. That's the reason I didn't tell you. Um, now, Mike. I mean, you know, Mike has been. Um, 
very instrumental in this, and we've had several people working on our renovation, and, and Mike um, was uh, kind of suckered in the, to, to leading that team, and, and so uh, we've gotten to know each other quite a bit in, in a very unique way over the past year and a half, I guess, through this, and, and so it, it's appropriate that Mike share with you, you know, kind of how God has been speaking to him through this. We're challenging uh, our church to, to pray and ask God, you know, what is it that he wants you to do in, in response to this campaign and how, you know, just in support of what we're trying to do here, what we believe God is calling us to do here with this building. And so let's just kind of jump in, Mike, you know, your, your church attendance, you know, reading your testimony, hearing your testimony, your church attendance started, maybe, maybe some have a similar story, but different than mine. Your first several years you were in church, or, or for several years, 24 years, you said, uh, you, you attended church in a different setting. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how that, that all began? Actually, longer than that, I spent 26 years in the military, and uh, I was already in the military. I was 34 years old before I came to Christ. Uh, at that point, Carol and I had been married maybe five years. But uh, most of the years since then, our worship has been in a military chapel. I think there's only one time before coming here to Wall Highway that we uh, worshiped at a church off post, and that's when we were stationed in Panama. Uh, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, even when we retired, when I retired from the Army down in, in uh, Fort Rucker in southeast Alabama, we owned a house there in Enterprise, and uh, we still lived down there for another 21 years, but we continued to worship in the chapel. That's what we had grown up with. That's where our friends were. We were used to that. It was familiar. There are some similarities, and there's a lot of differences between uh, worshiping in a chapel. Uh, not the worship, per se, but a, a chapel is not the same as a church. Similarity, if you come into the worship service, you probably won't notice any difference at all. But one of the differences is the issue of offerings. Uh, you think about the church itself, the, the chapel on military base. The government paid for it. If it needs uh, renovation, the government will pay for that. Uh, the light bill, the water bill, all the utilities, the government pays for that. The salaries of the chaplains and the chapel staff, the government pays for that. So the need of a military chaplain for offerings or tithes is, is different than it is here in our church. We pay for all those things as members of the church through our, primarily through our tithe. So I didn't see the same need to give to the chapel the way we give to the church now. That's not to say that we weren't giving a tithe equivalent, because we were, and even more than that, uh, that we were giving to God's work. And I say God's work because uh, over the years at different places, different countries, we had made friends with a number of missionaries. And so most of our tithe was going to the missionaries, the missionary organizations, uh, and the work that they were doing. Wycliffe Bible Translators, uh, Mission Aviation Fellowship, Officers Christian Fellowship, uh, Military Christian Youth Ministries, and of course the Gideon Ministry. Uh, we've been 
active with that ministry for a long time. So uh, we were giving the equivalent, but it wasn't all going to the chapel or the church where we worship. And so eventually you move here, right? You move to Madison, you join Law Highway. And so how, how, if at all, did your view of giving change? How did you grow in the area of giving once you came here? I'm going to be honest. To me, I give, and I don't make the distinction between tithes and offerings before we came here. I mean, it was all going to help do the work that God had laid out. But I have to tell you, old old man me, uh, late in my life as we uh, come here nine years ago, the Wall Highway, uh, I became acutely aware uh, of what that distinction is between offerings and tithes. Offerings, 10%, if you will. But uh, when we give that offering, we give that without any strings attached. We That's don't the tithe. dictate. That's the tithe, the, right? I'm yeah. sorry, yeah. The, the tithe. Be, be, be clear, no. But that's an important... Maybe I'm not as acutely aware as I thought, right? No, but that's an important distinction, and that's why we're, we're zeroing in on this, because, you know, the tithe is, you know, it's, it's taught in Scripture that we give, it's an act of faith, we give 10% of what we make to the, to the Lord, and He decides what to do with that, right? I mean, that's, whereas offering's a little different, so go on and yeah, our, share our, the... Yeah, our tithe, I mean, we give a tithe here to the church. And uh, we don't say how that's going to be used. It goes into one big pot in the church, and then it's used according to the annual budget that all of us as members have approved. But when we started doing that, I could not stop giving to all these missionaries and those organizations that we have known and loved and supported for so many years. So we continue doing that on top of it. In fact, we've even added more. Uh, Compassion International, I think, since we've been here. So uh, our giving is the tithe here to the church, but on top of that, we find more money to give to support these missionaries and different causes here in the church. we got a a, a special offering going on uh, right now, and that's for the Ecuador mission uh, that's going to take place. That is an offering, and when we give an offering, we can designate if we want where that money is going to go to we don't have to so that's the difference between tithes and offerings so how does all that you know we're talking about offerings and obviously when we're talking about this giving campaign that's what we're talking about you know separate from the tithe and that's why it's so very important we're challenging people to pray and 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 just respond to what god tells them to do we're not telling people what to to do there for that purpose i mean you know offerings should be you know what god gives me beyond the tithe, you know, out of, uh, out of his, uh, in response to his leadership, you know, we, we give uh, according to his direction. You've shared some ways that you do that. But how does all this apply to, to church renovations? You know, this campaign that we're talking about, how, how does it all apply to the renovations going on? Carol and I own a house. Took a lot of years to pay it off, but we own it. Many, if not most of you, own a house. That doesn't mean you have paid it off, but you're the owner. You have problems with it. You need repairs. Well, you want to make renovations. It comes out of your pocket. The government's not going to do that for you. So this is our church house. This is our church home. Who owns it and who's responsible for making those repairs, for making those renovations? 
you're looking at it. All of us are. It's God's house, yes, but we're the stewards, we're the caretakers. Legally, we're the owners, I guess, but uh, all the responsibility for maintaining the place that we worship in falls back on us. Carol and I were visiting this church for many years before we moved up here because our daughter and the son-in-law, Kirk and Tiffany, uh, this is where they attended. And even before we moved up here, we were hearing people talk about how the church looks old. It looks like it's from the 1960s or what. And it needs, uh, needs some updates and, and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be, uh, have an expert eye to figure out that, yeah, there's some things that need, we need a facelift in here. Sometimes your favorite pair of shoes needs to have new heels or soles put on them, right? And uh, I think I'm not maybe. Sure do that anymore. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the heels aren't conducive to having them replaced anymore, but uh, I think that's where our church is. We, we can look around. We can all find things. So why do we, why do we need to do that? If we want Wall Highway to be a, a base point from which we go out to reach others for Christ and hopefully bring them in, and hopefully when they come here to keep them here, we've got to have a facility that they're going to feel comfortable in, that they like and they want to come to, but it's more than just the looks. It's got to be functional. It's got to be able to accommodate the things that we, we want to do in the ministry. So, so, so how has God been working in yours and, and Carol's hearts in terms of being involved in this, this campaign, the Forward in Faith campaign? I wish you had started off talking about the widow's <laughs> might, you know, because, you know, are, are we... As we have been praying for what God would have us give, are we going to give the equivalent of the widow's might? Are we going to give everything? No, we're not. And we're not asking anybody in the church to do that. What we're asking is that everybody would seek the face of God, seek his will. You know, Lord, what you have provided for me. You know what my needs are. You show me what you want my family to give. And uh, so I, I think that's where we are. Uh, are we certain, or are we going to give sacrificially? Yes, we are. Are we certain we can meet that pledge and meet the tithe and all the other offerings uh, that we give the mission and all of our other financial obligations? No, we're not certain. If we were certain, where would the faith be in this whole thing? This is forward in faith. It's not come forward because he got it. It's forward in faith. So this gives us an opportunity to step out and trust God to provide what we need, what we want to give and provide, hopefully for a few other things on top of it. And, and how did you guys come to that decision? Uh, well, we flipped a coin. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) No, it's far too important to be that flippant about it. We, We have been praying for months on this. Individually, God, what are you leading us to do? And then together, uh, in our bedroom at the foot of the bed, there's a bench. 
we'll, we'll sit down on that thing to put our shoes on, take them off, or socks or something like that. But one thing that we have done for, for years is we don't go to bed at night until we have kneeled at that bench to pray together. We'll hold hands and we'll pray together. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we've been praying separately. We've been praying together. Uh, not too long ago, Carol and I are out for a walk in the neighborhood, and so we decided, okay, it's time to see uh, what's, what's God leading you to, to do about this pledge. And it turns out God gave both of us individually the exact same plan. The same thing. He provided the plan, and he provided unity in the family at the same time. So I just say, uh, thank you, God. Thank you for for your plan. Thank you for uh, answered prayer. And we will give fully trusting that uh, this is what he wants. Amen. Well, Mike, thank you for taking a few moments and sharing with us. Uh, Thank you for um, being willing to be transparent and uh, to share how God is leading you. And thank you for all the work that you've done, as well as all the members of the team. But uh, just to get us to this point, uh, you guys give Mike a hand, if you would, please. It's not easy to get up here in front of everybody. And let me say, Mike, I know that you're, you're, uh, you've said several times you wish I hadn't mentioned the widows, Mike, but let me say the attitude and the heart that you have just shared is exactly the point of the story of the widows, Mike. It's, it's not the size of the gift. It's the, the willingness to, 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 to use what you have as, and, and to do it as a step of faith, to sacrifice. And I think it, it, it's, it's perfectly appropriate uh, and, and fits in uh, exactly. As a matter of fact, um, you, you, I've got another one, but you are my visual today, and you did better than any other visual I've ever had probably, except for uh, maybe some of our other testimonies. And, and so, you know, it, it, but it does perfectly illustrate what we're talking about here is, you know, that God sees not only what we give, but he sees the heart behind it. And, and so the challenge is to, to seek the Lord and to respond in obedience because he knows our motivations. He knows why we're doing what we're doing. The second uh, thing, you know, God, what matters is, is our heart, and that's where we learn that God, the value of our gift is determined by his standards. It's judged by God's standards, not our own. He sees our heart. He sees our motivation. And so let's look back at our passage in Luke 21 at verse 3. I'll tell you the truth. He said, the poor widow has put in more than all of them. Mark points this out in his account. Um, So he sees her and knows that's all she has. She's giving everything she has to the Lord. And then verse 41 of Mark chapter 12, sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money in the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. So He wasn't as much interested. Don't misunderstand here. Jesus isn't counting pennies. He knows. What he's more interested in is the how, not the what. He's looking at how people are giving. What's their attitude? What is the condition of their hearts? Because he knows their hearts. He's interested in in how they're giving, not how much. He knows that the poor widow gave all she had. The measure of a person's gift does not involve how much one gives, but really what remains. I mean, what am I holding on to? And, and it's not, again, I'm not talking about figures here. We know the widow gave all she had, and literally she gave all she had. But it's not about money. Whether I give all of my money to the Lord, that's not the point, okay? Hear me on this. The point is, am I giving 
giving my life to the Lord? Am I giving all that I am in service to him? This offering is about more than two little coins. It's about the fact that God could see her heart and knew that she was 100% sold out, committed to him. That there was, she was holding nothing back in her life in terms of serving him. That's the point here. It's not the amount that we give, but the sacrifice that we're willing to make. You know, Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about being a living sacrifice. That's more than just an offering. That's giving my life as an offering. It's everything that I am and everything that I do done for the glory of God. And that's at the heart of this story. Yes, that will be reflected in what I give financially to the Lord, but it will also be reflected in how I live from day to day. It's not about the amount. It's about the sacrifice. And Jesus set his approval on sacrifice for all time and the love that promotes it. He gave all of himself so that we could live. And so, and it was motivated by his love, his desire that, that yes, for his glory, he, he saved us for his glory, but also so that we could be reconnected with God. He wanted us to have the experience of knowing him. And so he gave everything. Here's the point. The widow's might does not represent the least we can give, but the most. It represents our very all. True giving involves giving all that I have and all that I am to Christ. Lloyd Ogilvy says this, giving is to be measured not by its count, but its cost. Not by its amount, but its portion. Not by money, but by spirit. So it's not about the size, it's about sacrifice. Not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. You know, what, what is God calling me to sacrifice in my life on a day-to-day basis to serve him? And am I willing to let go of some things? Because if it's something that I'm refusing to let go of, it's too important to me, I'm holding on to it because I don't want to trust God with that, then it's probably something that I need to remove from my life because it, it has become an idol in my life. It's about sacrifice. We have a tendency to look at the size of the gift, but Jesus looks at the heart, which leads us to number three. The gifts that we give reveal our commitment. It reveals our heart, and God knows our hearts. Look at Mark chapter 12, verse 44. We'll look at that, and then Luke 21, 4. For they, the rich, all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she possessed, all that she had to live on. And then Luke 21, verse 4, For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all that she had to live on. So when it comes to our giving, God sees more than the amount. He sees more than the portion. He, he sees the proportion. What, what is it that we're giving in light of, of what he's blessed us with? Men see what's given, God sees what's left. He sees our heart, he sees our commitment, and, and, and by that he measures the gift and the condition of our hearts. The attitude is more important than the action. That, again, that's the point behind this. It's, it's, it's the attitude behind what we're doing, whether I'm serving, giving my time and talents, or giving the actual offering, my tithe, or the offering beyond the tithe. It's, it's the action, it's the attitude behind the action. And, and this is Listen, this is a giving church. Let me just, I mean, I've been amazed since I've been here. Um, not every church is as generous as you are. And, and I don't say that to puff you up. I say that to say that as your pastor, I see that as a reflection of your heart. And, and I commend you for that. 
Um, the reality is, though, if you look at, at Christians as a whole, churches as a whole, that's not always the case, and we should all constantly evaluate why we're doing what we're doing, shouldn't we? We should, we should allow the Holy Spirit to, to search our hearts and to show us what we're doing and why we're doing it, whether it's a gift that we're giving or service that we're performing or, or even time that we spend in God's Word and with Him. You know, what, what, what are we doing and why are we doing it? Because, you know, studies show continuously as you look at churches today and, and, and the, the giving that takes place, the truth is most give out of abundance. And, and a fact is that when it comes just to the tithe, most give less than a tithe. I think the latest average is like, uh, you know, if you look at believers, churchgoers who claim to be believers, it's like 2.5% instead of 10. As you know, in the Great Depression, people gave 3.3%. Um, and, and, you know, here we are in, in, in different times more affluent. And again, this isn't a guilt trip. This is a giving church, a generous church. But we all need to evaluate why we're doing what we're doing. You know, Lifeway, we know Lifeway is, is Sunday school material and, you know, books and all that sort of stuff. But Lifeway has an incredible research department. Uh, I think I've referred to it before, and they do uh, great work in the area of research. And I came across an article just this week uh, that speaks to this. And I just want to read a little bit of it for you just to kind of share with you where we are in America today. This article says that there's a great danger for any American Christian, and that's the idea that we can lessen the risk of difficulty in our lives by amassing wealth and achieving success. Our culture feeds that, doesn't it? Ever since humanity's fall, they said, in Genesis 3, we entertain the idea that what you have and what you do create who you are. Who you are is determined by what you have. And listen, I think especially for men, when you ask you know, somebody what they do, they're sharing their identity, right? I mean, you know, what I do is who I am, and that's not necessarily the case. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve with an idea. And the idea is this, how can you be complete if God says you can't have the fruit of this tree? You won't be whole. He's keeping something from you. You are not complete. As a result of their actions in taking that fruit, yes, they sinned, but here's something else that they did that we don't really think about. By taking that fruit, Adam and Eve, their actions redefined their identity. Before that day, their identity was in God and their relationship with Him and who He created them to be. But by choosing to take something He did not want them to have, they redefined their identity by what they had, not what they were created to be or who created them. While several means and methods exist, the article says, to, uh, to create an identity apart from God, wealth has served as, as, as an easy indicator of status throughout history. The rich man, to the rich man, I shared last week, Jesus said this. He said, sell all you have and follow me. And what did the rich man do? He walked away from his encounter with Jesus, dejected because he trusted, he couldn't let go of his possessions. He trusted his possessions more than he trusted Christ. He, he knew that, that it would cost him uh, all that he had to receive eternal life, and he wasn't willing to do it. Winston Churchill said this, he said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give because we're holding things loosely if we're willing to give it up. 
the research continues, LifeWay. It says, if we can achieve the life we desire through our efforts, achievements, and wealth, God may appear increasingly irrelevant to us. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis claimed, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give. It's not a sin to be wealthy. I've known godly people that are wealthy. But there's a danger, and that's why Jesus talks about it. And, to, and he says... You know, be satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simple by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent upon God. We need to learn from Peter's perspective, they say in 1 Peter 1.7, to, to Peter the object of a Christian's faith is far more valuable than the gold, than gold itself. And that's, that's at the heart of this. It's, you know, again, not a sin to be wealthy, you know, it's not a sin to have. I mean, if God's blessed you with, with a lot, then praise God for that. It's where does my dependence lie? What am I forming my identity on? Is it because, am I forming my identity? Is it based on what I have or don't have? My self-esteem, is it based on what I have or don't have? Or is my identity found in Christ? And if I can trust in him completely and live in total dependence upon him, then whatever I have or don't have in life doesn't matter as much. I'm able to hold on to things loosely so that if I do lose everything, you know, I'm still content. I'm still at peace. Now, I've never lost everything completely, but we came really, really close a few years into our marriage. Hurricane Katrina took nearly every material possession we had. It was in a pile. I think I've shown you the picture, a pile in our front yard. And standing there looking at that pile, I learned more about holding things loosely than I ever would have outside of that event because it can all be gone in a minute. But there with a, a baby that's now 15, almost 16, younger than two months old, and a wife, we'd only been married a few years, Mandy and I standing there, wondering how we were going to survive. God gave me a peace that was greater than probably anything I've experienced to that point because I learned in a new way that as long as I'm in the center of God's will, doing what he's called me to do, I can still lose everything and be just fine because he's promised to provide. And boy, did he. And I could go on and on about how he did that. And it taught me something about possessions. And it taught me something about depending on God as opposed to depending on what I have or what I don't have. In Luke 6.38, we read an interesting verse. And I'm going to close with that this morning. Very interesting verse. Jesus says, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, you, know, you can explain away this verse all you want to, but the reality is, I mean, this verse means what it says. You know, what I give, I'll get in return. Now, does that mean if I give you $100, I can go outside and expect to find $100 on the ground? Maybe, but that's not exactly what it means, okay? It means that if I'm willing to give, and we're not just talking about money here, right? We're talking about what makes up what we give, my time, my talents, and my tithe, the offerings in addition to that, what Jesus is saying is, it's to the heart of the principle of what we're talking about. If I'm willing to hold things loosely and I'm willing to give for the benefit of others, whether it's actually something physical or it's my time to serve somebody, that I'm going to be blessed in return. 
Not only am I going to be blessed in, the, in proportion to what I've given, but far beyond that. He's going to bless me more than I could ever imagine. Now think about it like this ball, right? If I walk around with this ball under my arm all day long, how much fun is that? It's a nice little armrest, but, you know, how much fun am I going to have with this ball? And not, not, not a whole lot of fun unless you just like having something under your arm. What's the ball made for? It's made to play with. And so if I walk around like this all day long, I'm not, the ball isn't being used to its full potential, and I'm certainly not enjoying it as much as I could. What do I need to do with this ball? It's a bouncy ball. So what do you think I need to do with this ball in order to enjoy it? I need to bounce it, right? If I'm going to enjoy it, boy, that is fun. There's something satisfying about that. I don't know. You ever just get a ball and bounce it, a tennis ball or a racquetball or something? There's something soothing about that. So I've got to use it. I've got to play with it in order to enjoy it. If I hold on to it, if I hoard it, that's no fun. I can look at it. I can touch it, but I'm not using it. I'm not enjoying it. But here's the other side of this. When I bounce this ball, what happens? It comes right back to me, right? Unless I throw it back in the room. I'm not going to do that. But if I bounce it, it's a bouncy ball. It'll come back, and that's the principle. You know, what we find... You know, we hold on to things, right? We tend to hold on to things. I just can't let it go. My security is in that, whatever it is. Let me tell you something I learned looking at that pile of stuff in my front yard. I can't hold on to it. I can't keep it from disappearing. And if it's going to disappear, it's going to disappear. You know, a 30-foot ocean surge is going to take anything in its path. It was five feet by the time it got to our house. Can't hold on to it. I can try, but if I'm going to lose it, I'm going to lose it, and I'm not going to enjoy it if I hold on to it. But if I give it, if I'm willing to let go, the blessing I receive in return far outweighs whatever I was holding on to. That's what that verse means. God says, if you will have the proper perspective, if you will form your identity in me and not your things, if you will depend on me completely and hold loosely the things that you have, and if I ask you to sacrifice, if you'll sacrifice the blessing from the relationship with me that you get, the gift that I give you, eternal life, abundance in life, not just stuff, but meaning and purpose and the presence of God and fulfilling his kingdom, all that you receive in return, will, what you had will pale in comparison to the blessing of living for me. That's what this is about. You know, listen, God doesn't need our stuff, period, plain and simple. He can do whatever he wants. He owns it all, but he wants you and he wants me. And how we handle the things that we have is a great indicator of whether or not God really has us. That's what he's trying to teach us, I believe. And so let's just take a few moments this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to show us what he wants us to do. Again, this campaign is about praying and obeying. It's not about, you know, a certain dollar figure. And, I mean, yes, that's involved. But it's about, you know, am I willing to respond to what God calls me to do? And that, that relates to giving. But listen, that relates to your life. Maybe God's calling you to take a step of faith in your life. Maybe it's trusting him for the first time. He's given his son. God gave Jesus to die for your sins so that you could be saved. And he wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know him and know his purpose for your life. And you have to accept that gift of salvation in order to have that. 
And so he may be calling you to take that step of faith this morning. Maybe he's calling you to an area of service that you know is bigger than your ability to accomplish. He wants you to take that step of faith so that he can prove faithful in your life. Maybe he's calling you to make some other decision in your life, to join this church or, or to do something else for him that I don't even have a clue what is. Whatever it is, let's just go to the Lord. Allow him to speak to our hearts and then respond appropriately. Father, thank you for allowing us to be a part of your work. You certainly don't need us. You don't need our resources, but you choose to allow us to contribute to what you're doing in our world and for your kingdom. We cannot be a part of that if we don't have a relationship with you. And that begins at the moment we receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus, you died on the cross to pay the price for our sins that we could not pay. You gave your life so that we could live. And you offer us salvation if we will put our faith and trust in you, if we will invite you into our lives and ask for forgiveness for our sins, you will give us eternal life. And and at that point, we begin the, the journey of living life with you and being transformed in character and in who we are and to who you are, becoming like you. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here in this place or at home who has not received that gift, that they would just cry out to you right now in this moment and invite you into their lives and then come and share that decision with me so that I can share with them what they need to do next. Lord, for those of us who know you, what are you calling us to do? We are to grow each day and to progress in our relationship with you, to take steps of faith that you call us to to take, whether that's giving or serving or whatever it is. Lord, just speak to us now and show us how we need to respond to your word and to your call on our lives. What is it that you're calling us to do? Lord, I pray that we would be defined by our love for you and our obedience to you. And Lord, that we would be known because of our love for you and our obedience to you. Lord, we thank you that you allow us to be a part of your work, and I pray that we would consider it a privilege and respond in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of invitation?